KPFA Berkeley 89.3 KPFB Berkeley and 88.1 KFCF Fresno online at kpfa.org it's 3 p.m. up next is cover to cover open book Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. On Tuesday, April 6, one of the few women ever to lead a major American Indian nation, former Cherokee Nation Chief Wilma Mankiller, died at the age of 64. As the first female chief of the Cherokees, serving from 1985 to 1995, Mankiller led the tribe in tripling its enrollment, doubling employment, and building new health centers and children's programs. As chief, she took Indian issues to the White House and met with three presidents. Mankiller earned a reputation for facing conflict head-on. She met snide remarks about her surname, a Cherokee military title, with humor, often delivering a straight-faced, quote, Mankiller is actually a well-earned nickname, end quote. In 1969, she got what she called an enormous wake-up call and took her first step into Indian activism by participating in the 19-month occupation of Alcatraz. Among her many honors was a Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award, presented by Clinton in 1998. In her autobiography, Mankiller said she wanted to be remembered not just for being the tribe's first female chief, but for emphasizing that Cherokee values can help solve contemporary problems. Quote, Friends describe me as someone who likes to dance along the edge of the roof. I write to encourage young women to be willing to take risks, to stand for the things they believe in, and to step up and accept the challenge of serving in leadership roles. End quote. She authored two books, Every Day is a Good Day and Mankiller, A Chief and Her People. The following is a talk titled From Native New England and Beyond that was given at WESU in Middleton, Connecticut on December 12, 2008. Stay with us as we listen to Wilma Mankiller. I want to be clear that I don't speak for all indigenous people or even all Cherokee people. The thoughts that I share with you tonight are derived entirely from my own experience. And most of my remarks tonight will concern indigenous people of North America. There is enormous diversity among communities of indigenous people, each of which has its own distinct culture, language, history, and unique way of life. There are many differences between people in various indigenous communities across the globe. But we also share some common values that are derived in part from an understanding that our lives are part of and inseparable from the natural world. Onondaga faith keeper Oren Lyons, who some of you know, once said, Our knowledge is profound and comes from living in one place for untold generations. It comes from watching the sun rise in the east and set in the west from the same place over great sections of time. We are as familiar with the lands, river, and great seas that surround us as we are with the faces of our mothers. Indeed, we call the earth Itinoha, our mother, from whence all life springs. This deeply felt sense of interdependence with all other living things fuels a duty and a responsibility to conserve and protect the natural world that is a sacred provider of food, medicine, and spiritual sustenance. Hundreds of seasonal ceremonies are regularly conducted by indigenous groups 
to express thanksgiving for the many gifts of nature, to acknowledge seasonal changes, and to remind people of their obligations to each other and to the land. Besides ceremonies in many indigenous communities, traditional stories are also an important cultural asset. Often in communities that have a strong oral tradition, traditional stories embody the collective memory of the people. These stories sometimes and very often describe the way things were in a distant past. What happened to cause the world to be as it is today? And some stories project far into the future. These prophecies seem particularly important right now in this era of increasing alarm about the catastrophic effects of climate change and even questions in some quarters about the long-term survival of humankind. Indigenous people are not the only people who understand the interconnection of all living things. There are many thousands of people from different ethnic groups who care deeply about the environment and fight every day to protect the earth. The difference between non-indigenous groups and indigenous groups is that indigenous people have the extra benefit of being regularly reminded of their responsibilities to the land by stories and by ceremonies. They remain close to the land, not only in the way they live, but in their hearts and in the way they view the world. Protecting the environment for traditional indigenous people is not an intellectual exercise, it's a sacred duty. What women like Pauline Whitesinger, an elder at Big Mountain, and Carrie Dan, a Western Shoshone land rights activist, when they speak about preserving the land for future generations, they're not just talking about future generations of people, of human beings. They're talking about future generations of plants and animals and every other living thing. I believe that when all human beings were tribal people and lived closer to the land, there was a greater understanding of the interdependence between humans and the land. But in the absence of stories and ceremonies to remind them, many people have no memory of that time. They're distant from the land and from themselves, and they possess little understanding of their place in the world. Aside from a different view of their relationship to the natural world, many of the world's indigenous people also share a sometimes fragmented but still a very present sense of responsibility for one another. Cooperation has always been necessary for the survival of tribal people, and even today, cooperation takes precedence over competition in more traditional communities. At home, in our communities, the most respected people are not those who have amassed great personal wealth, material wealth, or achieved great personal success. The greatest respect is reserved for those who help other people those who understand that as native people, as indigenous people, our lives play themselves out within a set of reciprocal relationships. Besides values, shared values, the world's indigenous people are also bound by the common experience of being, quote, discovered, unquote, and subjected to colonial expansion into their territories that led to the loss of an incalculable number of lives and millions and millions of acres of land and resources. The most basic rights of indigenous people were disregarded and they were subjected to a series of policies that were designed to dispossess them of their land and natural resources and assimilate them into colonial society and culture. Too often the policies resulted in poverty, high infant mortality, rampant unemployment, substance abuse and all its attendant problems. 
The stories across the world are shockingly similar. When I read Achebe's Things Fall Apart, which chronicled the systematic destruction of an African tribe's social, cultural, and economic structure, it sounded all too familiar. Take the land, discredit the leaders, ridicule the traditional medicine people and healers, and send the children off to distant boarding schools. And I was sickened when I read the report called Stolen Generation about Aboriginal children in Australia being taken away from their families and their communities. And they were forcibly removed from their families and the communities and placed in boarding schools. My own father and my aunt Sally were taken from my grandfather by the United States government and placed in in a boarding school when they were very, very young. Indigenous people everywhere, no matter where they are, are connected both by our values and also by our oppression. When contemplating the contemporary challenges and problems faced by indigenous people worldwide, it's important to remember that the roots of many social, economic, and political problems can be found in colonial policies, and these policies continue across the globe. In the Amazonian rainforest, indigenous people are continually battling large-scale destruction of their traditional home in the forest by multinational mining, oil, and timber companies. And that happens in many other indigenous communities as well. What was interesting to me about the rainforest is that some well-meaning environmentalists who should be natural allies to indigenous people worldwide focus almost exclusively on the land and appear not to see or hear the people at all. One indigenous rights activist in the Brazilian rainforest said to me, you know, it was popular a few years ago for famous musicians to go around wearing t-shirts that say, save the rainforest. But there were never any t-shirts emblazoned with save the people of the rainforest. And what he said was, he said, we, the people of the forest, possess the best knowledge about how to live with and sustain the forest. So, but in a way, to us or to him, it wasn't surprising that indigenous people are not in the consciousness of many people. Because no matter where I go, there's too little accurate information about indigenous people available in educational institutions, in literature, or film, or in the popular culture. The battle to protect the human and land life of indigenous people is made immeasurably more difficult by the fact that so few people know much about either the history or contemporary lives of indigenous people. And without any kind of historical or cultural context, it's almost impossible for outsiders to understand the contemporary issues faced by the people. This lack of accurate information leaves a void, which is often filled with nonsensical stereotypes, which on the one hand vilify indigenous people as troubled descendants of savage people, or on the other hand, romanticize them as innocent children of nature, spiritual, but incapable of higher thought. Whether they romanticize them or vilify them, the stereotypes dehumanize them and are very harmful. And the stereotypes about indigenous women are particularly appalling. While the role of indigenous women in the family and the community now and in the past differs from community to community, women have always played very significant roles in tribal society. Yet in the media and in the larger society, the power, strength, and complexity of indigenous women is rarely acknowledged and rarely recognized. There are many indigenous leaders who now understand that there's a direct link between public perception and public policies 
and that if indigenous people don't frame their issues for themselves, their opponents most certainly will. In the future, as more indigenous people become filmmakers, writers, historians, museum curators, and journalists, they will be able to use a dazzling array of technological tools to tell their own stories in their own voice, in their own way. Once a journalist asked me whether people in the U.S. had trouble accepting the government of the Cherokee Nation during my tenure as principal chief, I was a little surprised by the question. The government of the Cherokee Nation actually predated the government of the United States. And the Cherokee Nation had treaties with other countries before it executed a treaty with one of the first U.S. colonies. And most Americans don't know this, but Cherokee and other tribal leaders sent delegations to meet with the English, Spanish, and French in a very early attempt to try to protect their lands and their people. Though tribal leaders thought they were being dealt with as heads of state and as equals, historical records indicate that they were often objects of curiosity and there was a great deal of disdain for these very earnest delegates. The journalist with a question about Cherokee government needn't apologize for her lack of knowledge about tribal governments in the U.S. Many people in the U.S. know very little about the history of indigenous people, though they've been living in our former towns and villages for hundreds of years. Again, it's impossible to even contemplate the contemporary lives or the future of indigenous people without some basic knowledge of tribal history and tribal culture. There are actually in this country more than 550 federally recognized tribal governments who have a direct government-to-government relationship with the U.S. In the U.S., the Department of Interior is the unit of government that most frequently deals with tribal governments. Ironically, the Department of Interior began as the War Department and evolved into the Department of Interior over time. Sometimes when I visited the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Department of Interior, I think the same people worked there that worked there during the war era. They just changed clothes or something. The land base and the population of tribal governments range from some, some tribal groups that control millions of acres to some that have less than 25 acres. And the population of tribal communities ranges from the Navajo and Cherokee nations, each with a enrolled membership of more than 250,000 members, to some governments with less than 100 members. It's important to note that the population or land base or sovereign, sovereign tribal entity does not determine the degree to which it enjoys the rights to self-government. Just as the tiny principality of Monaco enjoys some of the same international rights as China and the United States, tribal governments with a tiny land base and small population are sovereign entities with the same powers as tribes with a large population or land base. Tribal governments in the U.S. exercise a range of sovereign rights. Many tribal governments have their own judicial systems, operate their own police force, run their own schools, administer their own clinics and hospitals, then operate a wide range of businesses. There are now over two dozen tribally controlled community colleges. All these advancements benefit everyone in the community, not just tribal people. The history, contemporary lives, and future of tribal people is intertwined with that of their neighbors. One of the most common misperceptions about indigenous people is that we're all the same. There's not only great diversity between indigenous groups of people, there's also great diversity within each tribal community, just as there is on a larger society. Members of the Cherokee Nation, for example, are socially, economically, and culturally stratified. 
Several thousand Cherokee people continue to speak the Cherokee language and live in Cherokee communities in rural northeastern Oklahoma. On the other end of the spectrum, there are enrolled tribal members who have never even been to visit the Cherokee Nation. So there's a great deal of cultural stratification. And intermarriage within the Cherokee Nation has created an enrolled Cherokee membership that includes people with Hispanic, Asian, Caucasian, and African American heritage. Again, each indigenous community is unique, just as each community in the larger society is, is unique. Too often, people tend to view indigenous people through a very narrow, one-dimensional lens. Indigenous people should be viewed with a much wider lens that allows them to be seen as complex, multi-dimensional human beings. So what does the future hold for indigenous people across the globe, and what challenges will they face moving further into the 21st century? I think to see the future, one only needs to look at the past. If we as a people have been able to survive such a staggering loss of land, of rights, of resources, and lives, and we're still standing in the 21st century, how can I not be optimistic that we'll be still standing, still surviving, still have viable tribal communities 100 or 500 years from now? Without question, the combined efforts of government and various religious groups, the combined efforts of various government and religious groups to eradicate traditional knowledge systems and culture has had a profoundly negative impact on our culture, as well as the social and economic systems of indigenous people. But if we've been able to hold on to a sense of community, a strong sense of community, of reciprocity, of interdependence, if we've been able to hold on to our languages, our culture, our values, our ceremonies, despite everything, how can I not be optimistic about the future? And though some of our original languages, medicines, and ceremonies have been irretrievably lost, the ceremonial fires of many indigenous people across the globe have survived all the upheaval and are still burning brightly. Sometimes indigenous people have almost had to reinvent themselves as a people but they've never given up their sense of responsibility to one another and to the land. It is the sense of interdependence that has helped sustain tribal people thus far, and I believe it will sustain them well into the future. We're prepared for the future. Indigenous people know about change and have, and have proven time and time again that they can adapt to change. No matter where they go in the world, they hold on to a strong sense of tribal identity while fully, fully interacting with and participating in the larger society around them. And we, in our state of Oklahoma, we have a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, very successful. He's still very close to his culture. And so he managed to figure out a way to interact with the society around him, but hold on to a strong uh, sense of, of what it means to be a, a Kiowa. And so our people can make great contributions to their people and to the world and still have a strong sense of tribal identity. One of the great challenges for indigenous people in the 21st century will be to figure out how to develop practical models to capture, maintain, and pass on traditional knowledge systems and values to future generations of tribal people. Many communities are working on discrete aspects of culture such as language or medicine, but it's the entire system of knowledge that informs the language and medicine that needs to be maintained, and not just for indigenous people, but for the world at large. 
perhaps there'll be a time in the future when indigenous people who have an abiding and deeply held belief that all living things are related and interdependent can help policymakers understand how completely irrational it is to continue on this path of destroying the very natural world that sustains all life. Regrettably, in the future, the battle for human and land rights will continue. But the future does look somewhat better for tribal people. Last year, after 30 years of advocacy by indigenous people, the United Nations finally passed a declaration supporting the human rights of indigenous people. It's one of the first political issues that I worked on in the 70s. And so the work began many, many years ago and culminated in this declaration that was passed last year. And it was passed, by the way, over the objections of the United States government. So going forward now that the declaration has been passed, the challenge will be to make sure that the provisions of the declaration are honored and that the rights of indigenous people all over the world are indeed protected. And, you know, it's interesting in this country, I've been asked several times by people, why in the, in the middle of one of the most powerful countries in the world do these tiny governments exist? Why do they continue to exist? Besides the inherent rights of tribal governments to exist, there's also a practical reason. We simply as a people do better when we have control of our own destiny. In the case of my own people, after we were forcibly removed by the United States military from the southeastern part of the United States Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, what's remarkable about our people is that we picked ourselves up and rebuilt our families and our communities again and Indian Territory, despite the fact that we had lost about one-fourth of our entire tribal members, about 4,000 people, either while they were being held in stockades prior to removal or during the removal itself. And so our people had left behind everything they'd ever known in the Southeast and started this new life in Indian Territory. And we, we began again. As, as I said earlier, we almost reinvented ourselves as a people. We started some of the first schools west of the Mississippi, native or non-native. We built schools for the higher education of women, which was a radical idea at that period of time in that part of the world. We printed our own newspapers in Cherokee and English and were more literate than our neighbors in Arkansas and Texas, and probably still are. <laughs> then in the early 20th century, the federal government almost abolished the Cherokee Nation and within two decades, and we had a skeleton of our government left at the turn of the 20th century. During that period, after we didn't have a fully functioning tribal government, our educational attainment levels dropped dramatically, and many of our people were living in extreme poverty without the most basic amenities. And then, 35 years ago, we began electing our own leaders again and revitalizing our tribal government. And during that period, the last 35 years, we run our own schools again. We have an extensive array of successful education programs. And we employ thousands of people. And our future is looking much brighter. Our children recently won the state trigonometry contest and several are Gates Millennium Scholars. Again, we simply do better when we have control over our own destiny. A couple of years ago, Harvard University completed over a decade of comprehensive research, which was published in a guardedly hopeful book entitled The State of Native Nations. The research indicates that most of the social and economic indicators are moving in a positive direction. Many tribal governments are strong, 
and educational attainment levels are improving. And more importantly, there's a cultural renaissance occurring in many tribal communities. Today, within many indigenous communities, there are conversations about what it means to be a traditional indigenous person now and what it will mean as we move further into the 21st century. Obviously, it will mean different things to different people in different parts of the world. I'm an indigenous woman of the 21st century. Being an indigenous person of the 21st century means that my life has played itself out within a set of reciprocal relationships with members of my community and my family. I feel so fortunate that I was born Cherokee, that I have a place in the world, that specific geographic space in the world and a community of people. And no matter where I've gone or what I've done, I've always known that when I needed help, there would be people to help me. And when other people needed help, that I would be there to help them. Being an indigenous person in the 21st century means being part of a group of people with the most valuable and ancient knowledge on the planet. A people who still have a direct relationship with and a sense of responsibility to the land and to other people. Being an indigenous person in the 21st century means being part of a community that has faced unbelievable and continual oppression, but still manages to find many moments of grace and comfort and family and traditional stories and language and ceremonies. Being an indigenous person in the 21st century means trusting our own thinking again, not only articulating our own vision of the future, but having within our communities the skill sets and leadership ability to make those visions a reality. Being an indigenous person in the 21st century means despite everything that has happened historically, still being able to dream of a future in which all people will support the human rights and self-determination of indigenous people. Land can be colonized and resources can be colonized, but dreams can never be colonized. Being an indigenous person in the 21st century means networking and sharing traditional knowledge and best practices with indigenous communities all over the world using the iPhone, the Blackberry, MySpace, YouTube, and every other technological tool that becomes available to us. Being an indigenous person means becoming the president of a country, as Evo Morales has done. Being an indigenous person means becoming a physician or a scientist or even an astronaut who will leave her footprints on the moon and then return home to participate in ceremonies that her people have held since the beginning of time. To be an indigenous and a person in the 21st century means to acknowledge and understand that we have to know our history and we have to know about all the injustice that has occurred, but to take the anger about the history and the past and channel it in a positive direction, to not go around with unresolved anger in our hearts or become paralyzed into inaction by the totality of problems we face today. We need to keep our vision fixed firmly on the future as our ancestors did or we wouldn't be here and heed the wisdom of a Mohawk proverb that I love. The Mohawks say it's hard to see the future with tears in your eyes. People often ask me how I have remained positive despite having had two kidney transplants and three bouts of cancer and my answer is very simple. How I've been able to be positive, I'm an indigenous woman. And so my people and my genes, we know a little bit about picking yourself up and move, moving on. So I'll leave you with that Mohawk proverb. 
it's hard to see the future with tears in, in your eyes. And thank you once again for spending a little time with me. Thank you. You just heard the voice of former Cherokee Nation Chief Wilma Mankiller, who just died on Tuesday, April 6th, at the age of 64. She was one of the few women ever to lead a major American Indian nation. This address was given at WESU in Middleton, Connecticut, on December 12, 2008. Many thanks to Jay Kewalani, who recorded this speech for Pacifica. This has been Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. With Eric Klein at the controls, I've been your host, Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. confused about what's going on with the new health reform legislation? Well, you're not alone. I'm Dr. Mike Lenore with About Health. Let's look at what happens this year. First, it establishes a national high-risk pool to cover people with pre-existing conditions. It provides coverage to adult children up to the age of 26 on all individual and group policies. There's no lifetime limits on the dollar coverage of care. It prohibits the exclusion for coverage on children with pre-existing conditions. A minimum coverage without cost sharing for preventive services and provides tax credits to small businesses with no more than 25 employees if the average annual salary is less than $50,000. Finally, it establishes a process for reviewing increases in your health premiums to justify those increases. These are a few of the changes scheduled for 2010. For more information on health care reform, join me on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. on KPFA 94.1. Give us your ideas, share your views. I'm Dr. Mike Lenore. That's about health. You're tuned to listener-supported KPFA at 94.1 in Berkeley.